Hello, podcast friends. Welcome to episode five. These first few episodes have a huge learning curve. I have zero experience in recording and editing. I was a wedding photographer for 10 years before becoming a pastor, but that was the pre-digital era. So in this episode, I interview Pastor Marlene Webster while sitting in her office. The room had many windows and it faced it faced the road. So anytime a large truck would pass by, the windows would rattle. And I think someone may have flushed the toilet during the interview. I cleaned it up as much as possible during the editing. So thanks in advance for your patience. I believe Marlene's story will give you insight, encouragement, and perhaps clarity. You've been so kind with your comments about the podcast. And may it inspire you to dream big and press in. Check out the show notes to comment or to connect with Marlene. Also, you can follow This Is Her Story on Facebook. I promise I will respond to all of your comments. Enjoy the episode. We really need to tell better stories. Instead of complaining about it, right? What if we just start telling the stories and flood the airwaves with something different? So you're a church planter. I'm a church planter. But that's um, not where you started. I started as, um, actually I was a lay person. I started um, thinking that I was going to go to law school. And um, when we moved to Owasso, where we lived, because it was situated between my husband's job, which was at the time in Flint, and my dreams of, had been accepted, actually, at Detroit College of Law at Michigan State. And so we picked Owasso, and both of us were pastor's kids. He was a lifelong Nazarene pastor's kid. I'd only been um, a Nazarene for a few years, but we would have just gone to whatever Nazarene church was here. If it was 10 people or 1,000 people, we would have gone to the Nazarene church. And it turned out that Owasso's church was around about 350 people at the time, and we started attending there, and we decided we wanted to be the sort of lay person that our dad always wished that they had. And so that was the sort of project that we jumped into. We got involved in a lot of things, and and we're just all, you know, always trying to be positive and supportive of our pastor and all of those. And it turned out that law school just kind of kept getting kicked down the road for me, and I was frustrated with that because I really wanted to go, but the door was not opening. And in the meantime, you know, honestly, I had said, because I had always been a smaller church, but when we came to Owasso, I said, this is a big church, there's not going to be a place for us. And then I realized when I got here that there was very little active children's. There was not a... Right. Children's ministry. And in the meantime of that, I sort of started feeling called into ministry, which is something I wouldn't say that I had actively resisted it. Although looking back now, I think that I have always been called to ministry. Yeah. That I just decided, you know, thank you, kind of on my own. I didn't have a big argument with God about it. I just was going to do it my own way and be a really good lay person and thought that was going to be how God was going to be okay with it. I started to have this really heavy burden for the children at our church, and I felt called to be a pastor. And our, we had a new pastor come, and he said that, you know, his goal was that in the year he wanted to hire a children's pastor. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe that would be me. And I thought, that's a silly thought, because I'm not going to be a pastor. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be an attorney. But then this really heavy burden, just, it wouldn't go away. It got to be the sort of, you know, the restless nights, the 
sleeplessness of, that God is calling me to do this. I said to my husband one day, I'm just going to invite our senior pastor over for dinner, and I'm going to tell him that I am going to uh, volunteer to be the children's pastor until he can afford to hire somebody. And they came to dinner that night, and before I got to ask my question, he said, I've been thinking about something. Um, would you be willing to come on staff as unpaid children's pastor? We can't pay you now, but would you be willing to do that until we can pay you? I said, yes, of course, because that's why I invited him over. And it was like this incredible God moment in my life. I haven't told this story in a while, but I really get, I get emotional when I think about it because it was all of a sudden like a, a switch flipped for me. And the next morning, we called all of our family and friends. It was like we were having a baby, you know. <laughs> Why was going to be a pastor? And yeah. so I started through the, the course of study and actually spent 13 years as pastor for families and children at Owasso First Church of Nazarene oh. under the mentorship of Roger DeVore, who was the pastor who, who called me and trusted me when I was a 27-year-old with, you know, with no training, except that I had grown up in the parsonage, which is quite a bit of training. Um, and, and I said yes to that. And sometimes I think that God had what I'm doing now in mind all along, that there would have been a lot of reasons why I would have said no to that. But becoming a children's pastor first felt safe on a lot of levels, maybe because I'm a woman, um, maybe because I felt like I could manage it and it was okay to do that. Um, but looking back over my own life now, my dad was a pastor, and he would take me to um, uh, nursing homes on visitation, and he would pray. And when I was like 14 years old, he he would he would say, "I'm going to pray for this person. I'm going to minister in Europe." And it's only recently dawned on me how he was trusting me as a woman, and how he was um, uh, empowering me as a woman to do ministry. And we never had a conversation about that. He never said, there's never any conversation about whether you can be a pastor and be a woman and all that stuff. But I realize now that my dad was empowering me to do that. Yeah. You know, And I think that even then I probably was called and just never really dealt with it. So, you, so how did you then leave 13, 13 years, mm-hmm. your children's pastor, mm-hmm. and then one day you just wake up and say, I'm going to plant a church? Mm-hmm. It was not quite exactly like that. So 13 years gives you time to watch kids that, that you have pastored grow up. I watched those kids who I loved and knew I put so much energy into making sure that they loved church, that they loved Jesus, kind of just turn 18, 19, 20 and say no thanks. And I had a conversation with one of them who told me that he was leaving the church because he wanted to be a more compassionate person. So at about that time, I sort of encountered the work of uh, Reggie Joyner and the whole orange thing, and I started thinking, I really poured my life into teaching kids that church isn't for them. That participating in the body life of church is boring. That you need to come to this special room where I'll put out a three-ring service for you. It's a Jesus-themed three-ring service, but it isn't a participation in the body life of the church. You're right, we're not very compassionate. We mostly focus our energies on people inside the church. And I started to lead an adult study for parents of kids who were coming to our children's ministry and found out there were a lot of stories about people who were wounded by church. And so I thought, you know, what if it, what if it was done differently? What if we didn't separate kids out? What if there was just this shared life in community that was focused on 
not compassion, well, at the time, it probably was just thinking about compassion as a good work sign kind of idea. But since then, my ideas about what the role of the church is in the transformation of the city, um, which is just going to be a lifelong project for me, has helped to sort of have a more mature idea of how the church should be compassionate. But at the time, it was just these, these kids, these young adults that I love so much because I watched, I've known them for 13 years. Right. And, and uh, all of a sudden, they're not interested in church, and partly that's my fault because we never really did, we never did any of the things that they think the church should be about. So it was convicting to me. And, and so I started to explore the idea of planting a church because I didn't really always sort of have, because of the way my dad worked as a pastor, I always had a sort of a, a passion for people who were on the margins and maybe didn't feel like they fit in a regular setting. And my senior pastor, again, always putting so much trust in me, said, well, I plant church in Owasso. And I thought, that's really silly because this is a town of 14,000 people. And there's already a church of, at the time was running five 600 people. Right. You don't need another church in Nazarene. But then and I went to a church planters assessment weekend through their new church specialties and realized that that amount of time that I had been in Owasso and the number of connections that I had made was the perfect tilling of the soil for planting a different kind of church. And so that's what we did. Your church is called City Church. Then um, October, October 7th, 2012 was our first public service. So we're less than a month away now from our six-year anniversary of the public meeting. Yeah, six years. Yes, and we worshiped in a lot of different places. Our our dream was um, that we were going to start a cafe in downtown Boston that would employ at-risk youth and teach them life skill and job skill and uh, be locally, like a farm-to-table locally sourced. And uh, we would then have worship on the weekends. We do worship in cafes. We don't have our own yet. But in the meantime, we started a nonprofit culture at Lost Hope. And that has become the sort of arm that through which we do community development, community renewal, and um, the, the sort of theme verse for me, this is why it's just one project, is that um, Ezekiel 36 talks about how on the day that I cleanse you from your sins, I will rebuild the city we live, and that the ruins will be rebuilt, the places that were like a garden of Eden. Or the places that were like a desert will become like the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And it has become that sort of project of holiness. You know, as holiness people, we have for a long time claimed that we have holy hearts, but Ezekiel says that if your heart is holy, your city is going to flourish. It's going to be renewed. And when we started City Church, all of, you know, we were this morning in downtown Owasso, and there's all these great shops and cafes. Those buildings were all empty cities. Ago. Really? And City Church, and it, there was sort of a movement of a couple of churches coming together. We met together with other Christians and started praying for the renewal of our city. We laid hands, and I, I could drive you through our city and show you. We stood in front of this building that hadn't been occupied for 30 years, and we laid hands on it because we were, we were praying about where we would be, but we were also asking that if it wasn't for us that, that a, a new wind and the spirit of God would raise up the dry bones of our city. And there, those places are planted and flourishing. I think that as we looked at buildings, people started to think, oh, maybe there is something really cool in downtown Owasso, you know? If I could show you before and after, we didn't directly do those things, but it was 
just a praying for uh, a renewal of the place where we live. It's to us, the gospel, because it's in flesh, it also has to be lived out in this particular place. And I don't know that we always pay enough attention to our place. Yeah, a lot of us will say we're community churches, but we're really not in the community. The right. community doesn't know us. If you live in a city like Owasso, Michigan, 14,000 people, um, and you think that you can go to a conference of a church in Chicago and figure out how to do church, it, you clearly are going to do church in a way that's disconnected from your place. Right. It doesn't translate well. Mm-hmm. So you can do a sort of disembodied church, which is what we do. But our project has really been to figure out how to incarnate the presence of Jesus in our city. Paint a picture. What does what does city church look like? Well, let's do Sunday because I'm assuming you worship, you mm-hmm. gather together, yeah, worship on Sundays. Yeah. So, what does Sunday look like? Sunday is part of how we are church. Um, there are people who probably are kind of part of our church but don't know it yet. But on Sunday we gather and we have two services. We have a 10 a.m. and a 4:44 p.m. But our services are comprised of people largely that we, we we have sort of a core group of you know 10 or 12 people who were kind of there from the beginning and helped plant the church. But the rest of the people who are come are people that we've sort of gathered up out in the neighborhoods where we work. Uh, we work with our drug court and we'll regularly have people who are drug court participants in our service. We work in a local trailer park and we regularly have people from that neighborhood who attend services. Although sometimes we have services at the trailer park and we're probably going to be moving that direction again. And and other places that we encounter people. Um, and so our service, we have people sometimes in our service who are going through all kinds of really difficult situations. To describe what the service is like, it, it's kind of like a traditional church service. We tend to put our music more toward the end because I have this idea that people who don't go to church, there's no setting in the world where we stand and sing for 20 or 30 minutes. It's just a weird thing. If you really think about the technicality, logistics, yeah. where do we do that in the world? We don't. Yeah. So we might start one song. We have a scripture reading, and I'm really passionate about the public reading of scripture. For me, the center of worship is the reading of the sacred text and participation in the Eucharist. So in fact, we have a little girl in our church who's six years old, and she would say that the reason we come to church is to have communion. And that is just, to me, that's the whole answer to what we did wrong at First Church. So this is a little girl who her mom was pregnant. This will just give you a little idea about something. Her mom was pregnant for her when we planted the church, so she's exactly the same age as our church. And it's kind of been neat to watch her grow up. And when she was about two, one and a half or two, we were having a Monday Thursday event and everybody was taking communion around the table and she started to say to her mom, Mom, I really, really want Jesus. People were tearing up, you know. Then I had a conversation with her parents and I said, it's up to you. We can either um, do a first communion kind of thing for her or you can have her participate or you can tell her she has to wait. I don't, you know, I don't. Because you're her spiritual leaders. A few months later, she started to get on Sunday. I really want Jesus, and they let her come up and receive communion. And now, pretty much every Sunday, when we get to that part of the service, the children in our church come up. They hold the basket, they hold the cup. We serve by invitation. People come up, 
sometimes they'll even say, she says, this is the body of what Jesus came to do. Never would happen in the program, the children's program yeah. used to do. And so what she believes to be true about church is, is exactly what I want them to believe to be true about church. And so Sunday, you know, we have reading scripture, we receive communion, we sing some songs, we have prayer time, sometimes words. We have people who have need come sit in the chair and the whole church gathers around and plays hands on. It's very interactive. It's not formal. People can ask questions while I'm preaching. Sometimes it is a dialogue sermon. I've experimented with different sermon models. This thing that they call pop-up stories where they just present a question to the crowd and let people share their stories. And sometimes I've incorporated that into my preaching. And I present a question and let people share their stories so those become the sermon illustrations. Tell about a time you were hungry, or tell about a time you were lost, or and then I preach from that, and so always try to make it really like a dialogue. I think our services are beautifully redempt because we don't require that you behave like us or believe like us before you can belong, and we wouldn't say, "Oh, the Bible says," you know, to not be corrected like that, and just to hear where that sort of questioning and doubt comes from, and then. You know, as we journey together, people find that in, in a space of unconditional love, you find truth. Out of City Church, you birthed Shiawassee Hope, and you, you mentioned it was already it's a nonprofit. But like, what it central premise? What do you do here? So the central premise is that we work with people primarily in generational poverty, and our mission is that we create community that empowers people to live creative, productive, and hopeful lives. So we aren't primarily a resourcing kind of agency, but the opportunity is really to, to help people get access to opportunity so that they can um, not have to be dependent and get that sense of fulfillment. And so we we work in local neighborhoods. So we bought a trailer in a local trailer park, converted it into a community center. We've developed a group of leaders there who really with our support, they make decisions about their own community and plan neighborhood events and, and help to secure resources for people in their neighborhood. And it's been really awesome to watch that happen and watch people flourish and have a sense of telling people that you are capable. And because we believe that every person was created in the image of God and we're all created to be creators, cultivators, and communers, we try to make space for people. We don't, it's not overtly faith-based nonprofit, and we did that intentionally because um, a lot of people in our community care very much about helping people flourish, but they, they're not coming from a faith perspective themselves. And so we wanted to bring not only the people we're serving, but people who are interested in serving them together and help them to learn as we walk forward how it is that this is how God wants the world to be. Well, what kind of opportunities do you connect them to? I'll just give you an example. Um, we just had our back to school party. One of the one of the really important opportunities is for kids to be able to have a positive sense about school, so that they can finish school and get a living wage job. And that's difficult for people in generational poverty. So we plan this neighborhood party. Uh, by we, I mean the staff of Shiawassee Hope in conjunction with leaders in the trailer park community. We have a, a neighborhood strategy team. So, um, we had this great party where we brought in, and it's a little bit resourcing, but it's a bridging to help create that positive sense about school. So all kinds of community agencies were there. 
Um, the school was there with the bus because one of the big issues has been that the kids from the trailer park get kicked off the bus a lot. And so we had the bus come out and the bus driver and the kids got to meet each other has to talk about, you know, the way to behave on the bus and bus rules and build relationship and all of that. And our hope is, and we, we think this is working, but it's a long project. To help people move out of poverty is not a three-month thing. It's a 20-year project at least. But our hope is that those kids will now be able to ride the bus successfully to school and be able to graduate and have a positive sense about school. But we have helped connect people to living wage jobs. To We've had families move from being on the verge of eviction to being homeowners, to being homeowners, because um, we surrounded them with not a lot of resources, but just um, uh, some mentoring and support, a community a network. All of us rely on community networks. If you're sick and you need somebody to take your kids to school, or if you're they have a flat tire. We have people who rely on. Not everybody has that built-in safety net, and so we try to build that for people, so that they know that they have an engaged community that cares about who they are, so that they have more opportunity to flourish. So we've supported kids who are first-generation college students in getting their books and actually physically taking them to a college campus and helping them get enrolled because they their parents didn't go to college. They don't know where college even is. Really, I, I remember mean, you telling me the story yeah. about helping them fill someone fill out an application. Yes. To even yeah. just apply. So those are the kinds of things that we work on. So it's largely relationship based. It's the tools we use are relationships and community development. Uh, so helping people to have pride in their local neighborhood, find their own voice to advocate for their own needs. So we do a lot of block parties, and it might just look like a party, but we are bringing people in from people who have resources and opportunities together with people who don't. And that's one of the beautiful things I think about the gospel is it breaks down walls. So you bring it brings people together who wouldn't traditionally be together. One of my favorite things at City Church is if you look around this room, you'll see that this is a group of people that only Jesus can bring together. Because typically these people would be at the country club playing golf, and these people would be standing in a food pantry line, and these people would be, you know, whatever. And they wouldn't be together in the same room. But the gospel brings them all together in the same room. That's my favorite thing to do, is to bring people together who would not normally be together. You, at some point, decided to run for city council, county commissioner. Okay, so first of all, what is a county commissioner? And then how did that, even the idea, come about? So a county commissioner is... Similar to a representative at any level of government, so you have city council, you have state representatives. We don't kind of know what state representatives are. Our constitution says that we're entitled to representation at every level that we're taxed, and all of us pay county taxes. I used to think that county taxes were largely just spent on roads and ditches, you know, and then zoning kind of things. But as we've been doing this work, I've learned that the county commissioners. Um, have say a lot of say about things like our jail, our courts, our health department, community mental health, zoning. Come to understand zoning as a justice issue, and I don't know that people are aware of how often zoning is done to keep certain groups of people out and other groups of people in, and that's not the gospel because Jesus brings everybody into the same room. And so, um, as I started to come to that awareness. So many areas that we're trying to work to see that God's kingdom come in um, was really under the purview of 
county commissioners. And so it still seems a little crazy to me, but I have decided to run for that position. And the other thing is that at the present time, our board of commissioners is having a hard time with civility, um, treating each other and members of the public not like you would treat somebody who's created in the image of God. I think it's one of the things I've brought. I served on our school board already and have for eight years. And uh, just to sort of raise the level of conversation, because when we believe that people are created in the image of God, it's going to make us behave differently with each other. You know, it's one thing to be pro-life and carry a sign about everyone's valuable, but then in the public arena, do we treat each other as if we're all valuable? As much as anybody, we tolerate not treating each other with that dignity that comes from being created in the image of God. Um, in a sense, I told my husband that I'm a little reluctant about this. If I didn't feel a thumb in my back to do it, I don't have time. I don't have the energy. If I had extra time, I'd rather sit home and do nothing. But <laughs> but I feel called to do it, and I and I've already seen how God is working through this. So we'll see. Elections in November. But you won the primary. I won the primary. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. I have to give an update. After, After the, the election, election I'll, I'll post it before the election, though. For me, it is that sort of warm project. Because when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we do pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, and earth is this heaven. And so every meeting that I head into, I realize when I go in there that we're going to be thinking, the primary way of thinking for that meeting is going to be um, according to empire thinking, or it's going to be broken somehow. And so I sort of envision in my head like a mold of the kingdom of God that just needs to sort of come down and be pushed over the top of and, and reshape things, you know, when the, the places that are high be brought down and the places that are low be brought up. And so those places that need to be reshaped so that they reflect the kingdom of God. The thing for me about that is that it's been a sanctifying process for me. The primary recipient of God's grace in all of it is not the that we serve, but it's me. I've been reshaped and remolded and stretched and challenged, and in the process of being I am becoming a better reflection of Christ because of this work. And so I'm curious, would you say you ran on a Christian platform? Why or why not? You have to pick a party. That's a tough thing. Because I belong to, um, I'm a citizen of another kingdom. <laughs> and this two-party system is yeah. not of the kingdom. No. Republicans are not Christians, and Democrats are not Christians. Right. right? There are Christians and there are who are Republican or Democrat. We've sort of been forced to choose. Right. I list on my campaign material that I'm a pastor. A lot of people in the community know me. I officiate about 20 services a year for people who don't go to church. So in a small town like this, a lot of people know me. But I'm not running on a sort of traditional right-wing kind of platform that we have completely called Christian. I am running as a Republican. I've been a lifelong Republican. There are certain issues that are pretty critical to me, but not everything about the Republican Party aligns with who I am as a follower of Jesus. And so I have to take a hard departure there. Is it the traditional, am I running on a Christian platform? Not in the same sense as, say, you know, Jerry Falwell would be, but not that kind of Christian. I hope that my life says who Jesus is. I could try to say words about him, but sometimes that is hard. I hope that my life says who he is in how we 
how I will conduct myself as a commissioner. Who I am as a Christian pretty much influenced that I decided to run and how I am running, but is it an overtly Christian platform? I don't, I don't know what that means. I think it's one of the things that makes me really sad these days is the large number of people in the church who can't separate Jesus from their America. And who say, you can't be a Christian and be a Republican, or you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. That is just crazy to me, you know, because, first of all, it's just distrusting another person's journey. We can't avoid that, almost. But um, at least not in, not at the same time be salt and light. I mean, you can't we can all go live in the desert someplace. I suppose you know I have to pick a political party, but but in the system we're in, but it's but not knowing and somehow thinking that Jesus would put his stamp on your entire party. That's a scary place to be. So it's definitely been dicey for me. I'm trying to navigate all of that and stay true to who I am and. And true to who Jesus is and what I believe the good news to be for the world. I think it's great. I think it's great that God raises certain people up for certain times. Mm-hmm. And you're doing something that He's not raised me up to do. One of the roles of being a pastor is being a prophet. And I don't think we've done that really well in church to be prophetic and speak to culture, you know. Prophets spoke both to the evils of culture, the evils of the kingdom, the church, the called out ones, Israel, whatever. And we haven't done that really well. We've pointed a lot of fingers at the moral ills of the world, but we haven't really been prophetic to say, this is what the kingdom would look like, this is how God wants it to be, and this is where the church is failing that, the culture is failing that. And I just feel like God has called me to do that. Maybe if I lived in another place, I wouldn't run, particularly if you called to be a politician. But I am called to be a prophet in Shiawassee County. Yeah. And I, I think that's the distinction, right? Mm-hmm. Your calling isn't as a politician. Mm-hmm. Your calling is to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and this is one of the roles that yeah, he asks right. you to live in. Right. It. it could be for a season. It could be you know, for a long time. I don't know. It might not be for it at, at all if I don't get elected. <laughs> Word is that I favored to win, so we'll see. What do you do to relax? Because you're a very busy person. And then what would you say to a woman who either is just beginning to wrestle with that call or has has been a pastor for a while and just feel like God is changing direction of how that's being lived out? So what do I do for relaxation? Relaxation. I don't like to relax. It's not a lot of fun for me. But I have to confess and say that I, you know, I commit the sin of breaking Sabbath. And I have been convicted about that. I'm really in a season right now to be committed to uh, no matter how busy the campaign gets, no matter how busy the work of community development gets or the work of pastoring gets, there will be a day of rest. What I like to do to relax is I have a portable hammock and um, and books. And so I I like to pack up my hammock and go find a park someplace and string it up between two trees and lay in a hammock and read a book. That's, that is just the ideal day for me. That's I love pretty it. cool. I also love to cook for people, and um, I'm, I am 
the more opportunities. It's sort of one of the ways that I know I'm really grounded is that I that I am cooking at home more. And it's a creative outlet of expression for me. It doesn't feel like work. So that's what I do to relax. Time in my hammock and um, and reading. You know, one of the questions that people have asked my husband for sort of fundamentalist things is, what did wife have to say about those verses in the Bible that say women should keep silent in the church? Which we're not going to do the whole exegesis on that, but it's a total misinterpretation of the scripture anyway. But... But my answer that I sent back through my husband to this man was that God called me to do this. And I know that so certainly that I don't care what anybody says about what I could do or should do or can't do. When God calls, you move forward with it. And that's the thing that gives me confidence. He he called me not in spite of the fact that I'm a woman, but because I am. And he wanted my unique voice to be added to the voice stream of voices that are out there. Uh, in Jeremiah, it says, you will go to everyone that I tell you to go to, and you'll speak to everyone that I tell you to speak to. That's when I was hesitant about whether I should be planting a church. Just, is this the right thing to do? It didn't have anything to do with whether I was a woman, but it was just this, God is saying, go here, speak to them, do this. That call comes to both men and women it has since before Jesus was born you know I love the story of Deborah in the Old Testament when the men just couldn't figure it out and the woman just comes in and here's the answer she's got it God has been calling women since the very beginning and so when he calls you that is your confidence I don't have anything else to rely on except his call and so I would say be obedient to it to the fullest extent that you can today. If you're just feeling a call and you're not sure, read a book. You know, talk to another woman pastor. Say yes to it today. And as you say yes each day to it, the whole future just unfolds. Never, ever, even six years ago when we planted City Church, it was an, an answer to a call, but I would never have envisioned exactly what it looks like now. It doesn't look like what I thought it would look like at all. But all I've done is said yes at each time when I felt that nudge, that this is the direction to go. I've made some mistakes. There have been things i said yes to that I shouldn't have said yes to. There have been things I've said no to that I probably should have said yes to. But I keep learning how to say yes better and how to say no better. I love the whole faith chapter that talks about by faith Abraham went, even though he didn't know where he was going. And I think sometimes we try to figure out too much at the beginning. And the Bible's just full of people who didn't get to know at the beginning. That's just the whole journey. Yeah. You rarely get to know, you know. There's no time that Paul is called to go somewhere and the instruction is, you know, he'll tell you when you get there. So right. you just go now and do what you can do. And what was the second part? Oh, and women were feeling that transition. Same thing. If you're just saying yes every day to whatever God opened. I think the thing that I've had to learn is that sometimes there's just not enough. There's not enough resources. There's not enough time. Just yesterday, we were doing books here. I was in preparation for our board meeting last night, and it was the money's tight. It's really close. And, you know, I'm mentoring the, the woman who works with me as a brand new Christian, and, and she's getting ready to go into ministry herself. And so here we are. And I always have the God provides story, and there's just really not quite enough. And uh, she left the office, and within an hour, 
she received an email from one of the agencies we work with that they were sending us some grant money that had sort of been delayed and it's nine thousand dollars and and that's how the journey has been every single day. There were people at the beginning who said this isn't sustainable. Um, you, how, why would you do something like this not knowing that you have enough money for X number of months in the future? I don't know why, but God's never let me live like that until like get right there to the edge, and then there's another place to step. Right. And that's how the journey goes. So I think even for a person who feels like God's going a different, getting you a different direction, if you think so, take some steps that way. If the path doesn't open, go back and go the other way. If it is the way to go, he'll keep putting another piece out in front of you as you go. But that takes, it takes trust. And there are days when I say, ministry cost me a lot. And I told my husband, I said, I'm done. You know, I'm done with this project. And this is the end of the line. Cost, it's costing me too much. And I'm going to be one of those women who just stays home and makes me go for dinner. It, it can happen. You know, there are people who get that life. And that's the one I want. <laughs> it wasn't true. I mean, it's a temporary feeling. Right. But I felt like I was at the end, you know? Oh, yeah. But then, that's where the rest comes in. And when you rest and just have a lean back into Jesus and and He He's a daddy, you know? Well, I never wanted to stay home and make meatloaf, but I do totally understand what you mean. <laughs> I said I could spend time laying in my hammock, make meatloaf for dinner. Not carry anybody else's burdens, you know. Yeah. It probably lasts about two days. But. I'd probably make it last a little longer than that, but <laughs> you need people more than oh, I do. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> I do need people. And that is such a huge thing that you're doing to help um, strengthen the voice of movement. I, I don't believe that the image of God is complete until there is, in Genesis, when it says, he created an image of God, male and female. He created that. Those aren't two separate things. The image of God is reflected in male and female. And if you're lacking voices of females, you do not have a picture of who God is. Mm-hmm.